From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Republican candidate for governor Greg Lopez sees himself as a fixer. Brian, Colorado is broken. Our state is broken. Everywhere you look, our state is broken. Whether it's crime or the cost of living, as for how he'd fix things, he's short on specific policies, saying instead he'll be a convener on gun laws. That's a very reasonable conversation that we should be having. On housing. You talk to the municipal league, you talk to the county association, you have these conversations. On climate change. I'm willing to have that conversation. I'm willing to look at reports. Lopez traces some of what ails the state to pandemic shutdowns, which he thinks were too heavy-handed, killing livelihoods while trying to save lives. Lopez is running against CU Regent Heidi Ganahl in the Republican primary. She joins us tomorrow. During the recent membership drive, you made it clear that you understand your essential role in keeping CPR well-funded. I support because it's informative, well-rounded, and I can't imagine my day without the news feed. I listen to NPR for all of its programs and its personalities, always entertaining and informative. I'm a supporter for life. Thank you for your support. You make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado elects a governor this year. The well-heeled incumbent Democrat Jared Polis has no competition within his own party. The GOP has a gubernatorial primary, June 28th. And yet it's not just Republicans who can vote. The state's 1.7 million unaffiliateds can take part. Choosing between our guest today, Greg Lopez, and Heidi Ganahl, who joins us tomorrow. Lopez hopes for a repeat of the alchemy that made him mayor of Parker at age 27. He's also a former Colorado director of the Small Business Administration and former head of the Denver Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Greg Lopez, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure to be here, Ryan. I want to say this is your second run for governor. In 2018, you placed third in the Republican primary. What about your message do you think is likely to resonate more this time? You know, I think the times have changed. I think right now the political environment, the political feeling of the voters is more of we want to get more involved in what's going on in our communities and more involved in what's going on in our nation and our state. And so I think the fact that I talk about it's about all of us, not just some of us, you know, putting people over politics and making sure that everyone has the right quality of life, that they can live the Colorado dream. That's what's resonating with people. And they really are looking for someone that has a voice that they can truly connect with. Okay, give me an example of all of us. What is a message that you think is inclusive of all of Colorado? We must always look at what we're doing as a state, that we're looking at how is it going to impact the entire state, not just certain regions of the state, so that people feel that you know what, we have a leader that truly is looking at the totality of the 64 counties. Do you think that the previous governors have been too, what, like metro-focused? yes. Okay. And that's why we have this this strong rural and urban divide. Uh, I've been here 34 years, and I would tell you that probably in the last 20 years, it seems that the divide between rural Colorado and urban Colorado, it's really been highlighted. And I think it's because, you know, some people are feeling that decisions that are being made at the Capitol and under the dome 
are not truly looking at decisions with visionary glasses. They're looking at it from either a next election cycle or they're not focusing on what the decisions are being made, how it impacts all 64 counties. Give me an example where you think well, like rural Colorado. Like the introduction of the wolf. Of the wolf. Okay. The reintroduction. The, re- the reintroduction of the wolf. So, you know, we already have the wolves here. They're crossing over Wyoming. They've already uh, have killed a couple of cows. But that decision was, if you look at the vote, it predominantly was voted by the urban corridor. But it impacts the livelihoods and lives of the people that live in the Western Slope. I mean, it's interesting. That was a popular vote. It's not something the governor necessarily no, had no, anything no. But, to do with. You know, but again, what I'm saying is, right, I would expect the governor to step forward and say, look, as you vote, I need you to understand something. These types of issues may have a harder impact on the Western Slope than it will do here in the Urban Corridor. Hmm. So just be cognizant of when we're making these decisions, how that's going to play to people that you may never see or you may never understand how they make a living. You were mayor of Parker. That's correct. Right? That's a front-range community, one that's growing by leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. People want water in Parker. Right. You could be accused of coming from a community that has been tone deaf when it comes to these matters of urban rural. I think if anybody was to accuse me of that, then they truly don't understand my record. They don't understand who I am. I come from humble beginnings. You know, my mom and dad grew up working in the fields. My dad had a sixth-grade education, and he never really learned how to read and write. And my mom has a 10th-grade education. I was elected at the age of 27. I was the youngest mayor elected in the state at the time. And I was a strong mayor, which means not only was I the mayor, but I was also the city manager. And so as I governed over the town, I looked at not only what was going on in the town of Parker, but what was happening in the surrounding areas, the impact that it was going to have. And so when you look at transportation corridors, you look at the growth patterns, you look at the need for water, you look at all these types of things. That's truly what governing for the people truly means to me is you got to look outside your boundaries. You got to evaluate, you know, our decisions are impacting other people. Okay, let's talk about some issues that have dominated, well, frankly, national and international headlines recently. And I'd like to start with mass shootings. Of course, we've seen this. Uh, most recently, at a school, at a supermarket, at a hospital. Colorado has its fair share. What power do you think a governor has to prevent mass shootings? What I would tell you is that we really need to start talking about what is the underlying cause of this? You know, for me, it's mental health. Because I'm a firm believer that it's the person behind the weapon, not the weapon, So we must understand what is driving individuals to do this. Is it our educational system? Is it our economic system? Is it something else? Because I don't believe that people truly want to be evil, that they truly want to take somebody else's life. There's something that's going on in their own lives that causes them to either be desperate or causes them to realize or feel that I don't have any other choice. And so as governor, what I'm going to do is focus on the root cause We all know that mental health is a big issue in the state of Colorado. We need to address that. You know, and so many times we just say it, but we don't take action to address it. You know, most people with mental illness are not violent. I didn't say they were, right. And so the risk there is that the conversation could stigmatize people with mental illness who are not prone to it. You've said it's about the person, not the gun. And yet, if someone who is intent on shooting up a school has, you know, a handgun, 
versus an AR-15, that is a difference in how much damage they can do. So isn't that about the gun? No. I think, again, it's about the person's intention about how much damage they want to do. So should they have access, uh, as these 18-year-olds did in various recent shootings, to AR-15s no, at that age? That's a very reasonable conversation that we should be having. Okay, how, I, how do you answer it? Well, I think we need to discuss that. Because here's the thing. If we're talking about 18-year-olds, are we talking about 18-year-olds that live in the urban corridor? Are we talking about 18, 18-year-olds that live in rural Colorado? What is the total implication of that? Well, so what presumably I'm saying, there'd be well, a law. There could be a what law. I, but yeah. what I'm saying is that we should have that conversation. About Let, the age yes, that you should have yeah, a gun? let's have it. Where do you land in that conversation? Well, we'll have to look at all the other issues. Personally, for me, I tend to say, you know what? The Second Amendment, the Constitution, should always drive our conversations. But that doesn't mean that we are not able to have dialogue about when someone should be able to purchase a gun or what age. We do that all the time. Look at when you can get a driver's license, when you can buy alcohol, when you can rent a car. You have to be 25 to rent a car. So having that type of discussion, I think, is a reasonable discussion to have. What would you do in terms of mental health support? The current governor, uh, who you hope to run against in the general election, and the current legislature invested quite a bit of money in behavioral health this past session. What would happen under a Lopez well, here's the thing, administration? Ryan, it's one thing to allocate money. Look, I've seen councils, I've seen counties, I've seen states allocate money. But when you really look at what is the program that is actually going to change and make an impact in the lives of these individuals. We must remember, Ryan. Well, so what is that program? Have you seen one that works? Who, well, what would get your investment? Well, again, I would tell you that we need to have good, thorough conversation. Passing legislation with a fancy title and passing legislation that says, well, this is going to help. It all sounds good. But you've got to dig deeper to say, is it actually happening? You know, I, the theme I'm hearing now on the question of mental health and guns is we'll have a conversation. Are there laws on the books related to guns that you'd like to have repealed in Colorado? One of the things that gives me pause for concern, and we're talking about mental health and guns, is the red flag bill. And let me tell you why. This is a law that basically says if someone is in a certain amount of mental health crisis or is believed to be a threat, there is a temporary removal of their weapon. Correct. Some would describe it as a think crime law. I think someone might do something, and because I think they might do it, we need to take some type of action. They haven't really been convicted. But a judge does have to sign off on it. That's true. But that's a law that gives you pause. You're not totally comfortable with it as passed. That's correct. And uh, just to reiterate, you are open to the conversation around the age that someone might have a particular weapon. Yes, And our conversation with Republican gubernatorial candidate Greg Lopez continues after a break. A voter asks what he'd do about how much it costs to live. Plus, why Lopez says Colorado is broken. Tomorrow, we'll hear from his opponent in this race, Heidi Ganahl. Primary ballots must be in by June 28th. Both Republicans and unaffiliateds can take part in the gubernatorial contest, which is only on the GOP side. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Ballots are out for this year's primary election in Colorado, and nearly everyone gets to participate. Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated. Who's running? What are the issues? How do you cast your vote? I'm Megan Verlee from the CPR Newsroom. Find out what you need to know to fill out your ballot online at CPR.org. And on Tuesday, June 28th, hear full coverage of the primary here on CPR News and on the Colorado Public Radio app. Today and tomorrow, we're hearing from the Republican candidates for governor. Today, it's former Parker mayor and former small business administration leader Greg Lopez. Tomorrow, CU regent and entrepreneur Heidi Ganahl. Whoever wins June 28th will face Democratic incumbent Jared Polis. We reached out, uh, Greg Lopez, to Republican voters for questions, and we heard about the cost of living a lot. Brad Michael of Castle Rock says he struggles to pay for food, utilities, and gasoline. I would ask the candidates what they would do to address the problem of inflation and how it affects every Colorado. As a retired guy on a fixed income, you know, six months ago, I wouldn't have given that answer, but that's definitely what's at the forefront now. Well, first of all, as governor, what I want to make sure people understand is inflation hurts the poor, hurts those that are on a fixed income, and the hardworking men and women more than any other demographic out there. Because inflation is caused by government spending more money than the economic market can withstand. And so when you look at all the stimulus money that got spent, all this additional funds that were brought forth, that is what's causing inflation. Do you disagree that businesses needed help early in the pandemic? I say that the help that we should have given small businesses is never to shut them down. Because I'm the former director of the United States Small Business Administration. The Colorado office of that. And being a former mayor, I truly understand the economic impact that a small business has on their community. So had you been governor early in the pandemic, before the vaccine came along, for instance, you would not have curtailed, say, the restaurant business to the extent that the health departments did. That's correct. Correct? I would not have. Because there's a difference between looking from a standpoint of a medical aspect, which I think the jury is still out on how well that was, versus understanding that the economic impact So when people were saying we were doing this to save lives, they actually destroyed families because small business owners are investing their savings. They've taken a second on their mortgage. And when you shut down their Colorado dream with no other uh, replacement, you've basically have destroyed their family and their future and the employees as well. Weigh that, though, against the health risks. I mean, there was no vaccine. We know that people gathered close together in small business settings could easily spread the virus. And to the gentleman in Castle Rock, he is now feeling the ramifications of all those decisions. If we shut down our economy and then we're going to have to bring more money into the economy, it would make sense that we're going to cause inflation, and now you have the Federal Reserve saying we're going to raise interest rates. Why? Because they want to keep money away from people so that they can the, the economic engine can absorb all that money that's out there right now. You know, we're seeing both inflation, so record prices. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing record profits at corporations, many at, corporations. At corporations. Yeah, so w- how do you square that when you see that consumers are paying record prices for things? Look. 
Corporations will always make profit. I used to tell people, and I'll tell you here today, when corporate America sneezes, small business catches pneumonia. So if you're telling me, hey, Greg, look, corporations are doing great. Shouldn't we do in the happy dance? I would say, what about our small businesses? What about our, our main streets? What about our communities? Because here's what happens. With corporate America, the richer get richer and the poorer get poorer. For me, I want to make sure that the poor and the middle class working hard families get the ability to live the Colorado dream. Let's talk about how to do that, because that very much addresses Brad Michael's question in Castle Rock. Mm -hmm. How do you change his life? Well, you know what? How about we shrink government? How about we don't enforce the fees and some of the taxes that government is enforcing today? Could you give me an example of government investment today that you would not have made? Well, look, (laughs) there's a lot of investments. I will tell you the state budget. 30% of that state budget is fraud, waste, and abuse. We're not using that money correctly. How do you know that 30% of the budget is fraud, fraud, waste, and abuse? How how do you know that? Anybody that's run a a corporate office, anybody that does government, anybody that will tell you this, in government, every department head will tell you their job is to spend every single penny that they receive because if they don't, they're not going to get more money the following year. So in government, you'll find that towards the end of the of the budget cycle, people are spending money on things they don't need so they can get more money next year. The cost of housing is even more out of reach now for Coloradans than it was just a few years ago. Statewide, the median price of a home is about $600,000. Rents have risen at least 15% in Metro Denver. What is one way you'd boost the number of affordable housing opportunities? It's crazy. It's crazy that we become a state that is so unaffordable. It seems like our developers and our builders are no longer interested in building starter homes. You know, there was a time in America where you would buy a house that was maybe 1,100 square feet. You didn't buy a house at 1800 or 1900 You grew into it. So are you saying that you want more homes built around the 1100 square I foot? want us to look at building starter homes. So we got to start asking our question, the question, why is it costing so much? What is driving the cost of labor? What is driving the cost of materials? What is costing the drive of the development and the subdivision? So I, I hear you um, raising a lot of questions. What are some of your answers to spur this? Well... First of all, we need to remind people that we must reevaluate our materialistic approach on how we grow our economy and how we grow our communities. Because there's nothing wrong in being uh, more affordable in things. You don't need the granite countertops. You don't need the fancy driveways. You don't need these big yards. You don't need any of that. That is a want. How do you affect that as governor? You have a discussion with... The Denver Regional Council of Governments, you talk to the Municipal League, you talk to the County Association, you have these conversations. A governor is not about passing laws and finding solutions. A governor is about bringing people to the table. What the Lopez administration is not going to do is just throw money like the current governor is doing, like the mayor did, because we're not fixing it. The lack of homes is is being stemmed from what? Let's ask that question. Is it because the builders are having to go through a process? Is the building department not processing those well? 
Would you require about builders to develop more affordable housing? I'm not going to require anybody to do anything. Okay. At the end of the day, I believe developers and builders want to create good communities. They want to create communities that are going to be long-lasting and truly allow people of all ages, of all income, to be able to live that American dream. You know, it's not as simple as a lot of people would like to make it. And this is a complexity. This is a complexity of governing. With the likely end of Roe v. Wade, should there be a federal ban on abortion? Well, as you know, nowhere in the Constitution of the United States does it say that the federal government can take away the wishes and the vote of the people of their respective states. The states get to decide. And Colorado already decided. They already passed legislation on the abortion issue. So the ruling of the Supreme Court is not going to change anything in the state of Colorado. Do you want a federal ban on abortion? It sounds like no. You want that to be left to the states to determine. That's correct. Do you want abortion to remain legal in Colorado? I would like to see abortion not happen in the state of Colorado. I'm a strong believer in life. I think we as a state have the opportunity to become that state that people will know as, in Colorado, they show love, compassion, and empathy for the women that find themselves in unwanted pregnancies. And what the state does is they partner with pregnancy centers so that these women find themselves in an environment where they have a support network, where they have choices to determine how they're going to move forward. But I think every person in Colorado wants to make sure that we are known as a state that has love and compassion both for the woman and the unborn child. I don't think anybody wants to say that we don't care for either one. Are there any exceptions that you'd want to see for abortion, Uh, rape or incest, for instance, or for medical reasons? I personally believe that there should be no exceptions. But as governor, let's make this clear, the governor doesn't have that authority. It's the legislature and the people that decide what's going to happen. Crime, including violent crime, is rising in Colorado. We heard from many Republican voters who are worried about their own safety, the threat to their property. Uh, Is there a policy that you'd pursue to help reverse the trend? Ryan, Colorado is broken. Our state is broken. Everywhere you look, our state is broken. When it comes to crime, Colorado is broken. We're the number one in the nation for auto theft. Ask yourself why. The reason we are number one in the nation is because stealing a car is no longer a felony. It's a misdemeanor. I think it may depend on a car's value, by the way. No, it doesn't. Don't get it wrong. Don't spin it. It has to deal with the fact that someone stole your property. So you talk to police officers. I encourage you. I challenge you. Go talk to people that have had their car stolen and tell them it really doesn't matter what the value of your car is because it doesn't matter. To me, when you own property... We must assure that no one is going to take away your property. So I just, I just want to be clear. I'm not spinning anything. That's not my interest. My interest is to come with, you know, the facts here. And, and it does depend, the punishment right now, on uh, how much a car is worth. I think what I'm hearing you say, Greg Lopez, is a car is a car is a car. A theft is a theft is a theft. That's true. Okay. If Colorado is broken, why do so many people want to live here, do you think? Well, because they don't know it's broken. Look... You talk to the people that are overseeing the homeless shelters and they tell me, you know, Greg, there's a lot of people that live in the surrounding states and they hear that Colorado's doing a great, you know, it's 
great. Life is great in Colorado. And they move here. And then they realize, you know what? I can't afford a home. I can't afford the apartment. I didn't realize crime was so high. I didn't realize that Denver is starting to turn into San Francisco and that Colorado is turning into California. And so when you say a lot of people want to come, I'm telling you a lot of people are leaving the state. You know, so it's one of those perception things. And for me, you know, and I know there are companies today that refuse to go downtown and do any type of services because of the fact that it's not safe. You had Mayor Hancock do a press conference and tell people, do not leave the state. Do not leave the city. You know, we're going to be safe. We're going to be doing all these types of things. You have the governor saying, you know what, within five years, I'm going to make Colorado the safest state across the country. Well, how do we get to this point? It's because of the legislation and the misguided policies that we've been dealing with. Isn't it also because of factors beyond any politician's control? I mean, the pandemic. No, you know what? People use the pandemic as an excuse all the time. You know, the real people out there recognize that the pandemic had nothing to do with the rise in crime. The pandemic didn't have to do anything with the homelessness. The pandemic had nothing to do with... But it has to do with joblessness. It has to do with wages. Because we shut down the economy. Who drove that decision? You know, people were living their lives. You know, and all of a sudden, they're told, if you don't get the vaccine, you're going to get fired. If you don't do what we tell you to do, you can enjoy what's going on. You know, you remember some of the restaurants are saying, we're not going to serve you unless you have the vaccine. That's segregation. That is true segregation. And I thought here in America, we had gotten rid of segregation. So you're equating a restaurant that wants you to be vaccinated. uh, That chooses chooses not to let you in their building. Mm -hmm. You think that's the same as saying to a person of color, you can't sit here? You tell me the difference. Well, the difference is that you can't change whether you're black and you can change whether you're vaccinated. Oh, really? So if if you've already gotten it, and you survived it, and you have natural immunity. Natural immunity doesn't last uh, really? for an indefinite period of time. Neither does the vaccine. But in other words, you think that's the same, that the, someone's race and being turned away for their race of course. is the same. And as- you may not understand it because you're not in my seat. So if you were in my seat, you would probably have a different perspective because I know how my family grew up. I know what it was like before the Civil Rights uh, Act. So you may have a difficult time understanding it, but I don't. Republican Greg Lopez wants to be governor. Now, he mentioned federal stimulus dollars leading to inflation. Economists say there's also more involved, like post-pandemic supply shocks and the war in Ukraine. We talked to another Republican voter, Rick Benite, who lives in Monument. And he told us the issue that's on the top of his mind is water. He's concerned about how future water needs will be met in this state. It affects me because I am an uh, avid fly fisherman, and I want to make sure that our rivers are protected. Uh, but yet we still have the water needed for the growing front range. And then, of course, with the, um, the Colorado River being under such pressure uh, from other parts of the country, How does Colorado go about protecting our state and our needs while still being a part of the compact? You know, that's a tough one because these are interstate compacts. These are approved by both legislatures of every single state. And so what we need to look at is how is it, how are we using our water? 
and what are the priorities? And yet we can't control how fast other communities grow, other states grow, but we must have projects that store water. We must talk about how we're going to preserve these resources. Would you seek to control growth in Colorado? I would seek for us to have managed growth. You know, Governor Bill Owens, when he was governor, he talked about smart growth. And I think that's the right way to approach it. Let's what have what some, does that look like? Well, smart growth is that when you're growing, do you have the right emergency services? Do you have the right transportation corridors? Do you have the right number of schools? Do you have the water resources? Do you, is the electrical grid able to sustain additional burdens on it? That's smart growth. So in that way, uh, and I appreciate this this policy idea. In that way, do you say to someone, I'm sorry, you can't build that home or to a developer, you can't build that community because I just don't see the water for it? I don't say that. The proper role of government is to protect our freedoms, our liberties, and to ensure that we have safe communities. Government, though, can also bring the topics to the table for discussion. There's a lot of stakeholders in these issues. You have fire districts, you have Uh, recreational districts, you have water districts, you have sewer districts, all those types of things must be looked at when you're making good informed decisions. So so, this is another issue, it strikes me, where you say we have to have a conversation with the parties. Yeah, with the stakeholders. You talk to any mayor, you talk to any county commissioner, and they will tell you the one thing they resent the most is when states put unfunded mandates on their shoulders because they got to figure out how to pay for it. Where does human-caused climate change rank on your list of priorities? You know, for me, the jury's still out. The jury is still out that what you just stated is actually something we need to be concerned with. But, you know what, I'm willing to have that conversation. I'm willing to look at reports. You know, for me, I don't have a position on that because I don't have the totality of the information to take a position. Isn't it time that you did the homework enough to decide? Not on that issue, If you're running for governor? not on that issue. Okay. Because you just told me the number one issue in people right now is inflation, their cost of living. It's not about the impact of humans on the environment. They're right now worried about how am I going to survive? How am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to be able to have a good future? That's the number one issue in people's minds. So climate change does not, for you, represent an existential risk in the way that inflation does, for instance. At this point in time, I think people want their leaders to focus on what's impacting them. That doesn't mean you ignore it. It just means it's not the priority. I want to ask you about the January 6th, 2021 insurrection. Was the siege on the U.S. Capitol wrong? (laughs) You know what? It's one of those things again, right? Some call it a siege. All I know is what I see on TV. I wasn't there. I wasn't in Washington. I have no idea how it all came about. You can read up on that and look at the charges. But again, right? People will tell you, you know what? There's two sides to every equation. What I see being reported is chaos, confusion. You know, I can't even find where the truth is. No one knows. Well, we do know because several Coloradans have been charged. The charges include impeding officers with a violent weapon, inflicting bodily injury. Was it wrong to flood the Capitol I think any time they did assault officers and 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 threaten members of Congress. Anytime you destroy property. At least one person has pled guilty, by the way, among the Coloradans. Anytime you destroy property, anytime you harm another individual, anytime you threaten someone's life. Of course that's wrong. 
No one would say that that is right. So the siege on the Capitol was wrong? You're calling it a siege. I'm talking about the behavior. I'm telling you that if you, if you were to harm somebody, destroy property, threaten somebody's life, that is not something we should allow. I'm not talking about a siege. I'm talking about the behavior. What, what word would you use for what happened on January 6th? I don't know that I would use any word. Because whatever word you use, it doesn't bring unity to what we're trying to resolve here. What we need to do is focus on what actually occurred. And if we're going to hold people accountable, which I think we should, then let's focus on that individual's behavior. That individual. Not all those people that showed up. Because Did the people who stormed the Capitol, were they wrong to do so? I think those that stepped over the line, that went into the building, that destroyed property, that threatened police officers. Yes, those people were wrong in what they did. Do you believe Joe Biden was duly elected president of the United States? And the reason I ask that is because some Republican voters uh, continue to dispute that. Well, you know, that's the beauty of America. We all have freedom of speech. We all have the right to our own opinion. We all can argue positions and we should respect each other's positions. We should never bully people because we don't agree with them. What is is your position on whether Joe Biden was elected president? Well, you know, when you look again, I'm not in reviewing all the information. Right. So you're asking me to form an opinion based on what I see. I'm asking you if. So I can tell you this. I firmly believe. Okay, that if we ever find out what actually occurred in this election, and that's really the question that people are asking, it wouldn't surprise me if we find out that there was something that wasn't done correctly and we do have the wrong person in in office, but we're not going to go back and change it. We're not going to go back and say, you don't belong. We learn from that. I'm not here to tell you that we need to remove the president from his position. I think he needs to serve out his term. I think we need to go to the next election and we need to see what happens at the next election. Are there any Republican victories in 2020 that you dispute? Say the election of Ken Buck or Doug Lamborn, Lauren Boebert. I just said <laughs> that we can't go backwards. I think we need to accept and move forward. However, that doesn't mean we don't stop asking the question. Was there something wrong with that election process? So court after court after court struck down the claims uh, that there were any great disparities in the election. Those courts' decisions, and even I think it was uh, President Trump's own uh, head of election security who said it was one of the safest elections in the country's history. That is not enough evidence for you that the election was secure. Look, I tell you that everything I've seen, there's a big question mark on our election processes. In 1993, when you were mayor of Parker, um, your then pregnant wife called the police to your home. Reports were that after she struck you in the head, you pushed her down, kicked her, struck her. Uh, You also apparently grabbed her by the hair and tried to drag her. You both pled guilty to harassment. Why doesn't hitting a pregnant woman disqualify you from becoming governor. So let me ask you this. What evidence do you have of what you just said? Our source is from the Denver Post at the time and the Rocky Mountain News. Do you dispute that characterization of what occurred? Yes, I do. You do? That was an article that was written 
Yes. Okay. And so which what what so is inaccurate? What is inaccurate about it? Me pulling her hair and trying to drag her across the room. Okay. Did she strike me? Yes. Did I push her down? Yes. Did that happen? Yes. Okay. Let's. So make you sh- dispute the hair pulling? Yes, because you're trying to describe it as a very violent, violent event. You just said that you did push down your pregnant wife. Isn't I, that violent? If a push is violent. If you push somebody, if you're a violent person with that, some would say that's a very violent act. People push each other either in kidding or fun or in gesture. Let's not lose sight of the conversation here, though. My wife and I, we've always talked about this incident. We never have hidden it. I was a sitting mayor when this happened. For six weeks, my wife and I were on the, every major outlet in every major publication. So we never have denied it. We've been married 34 years. This happened 28 years ago. We learned from our mistakes. We have a strong marriage. We love each other. What did you learn? Well, like most couples, communication. Communication is always the most challenging thing between couples in any relationship. And so communication and making sure that you're listening and hearing. You know, we went to marriage counseling. If you ever, Ryan, or any of your friends are having problems in their relationships, I would always ask you to encourage them because I encourage everybody, go to marriage counseling. Can you give us an example of achieving a compromise, solving a problem with someone whose views differ from your own? Maybe as mayor of Parker or when you led the state office of the Small Business Administration. Of course. Colorado Horse Park. You ever heard of it? Colorado Horse Park? Is that what you said? Yeah, Colorado Horse Park. Uh, I don't think I have. Go ahead. So... In order for me to bring the Colorado Horse Park to fruition, which is an equestrian center, uh-huh. okay, I had to bring an understanding between the county, Douglas County, the Homeowners Association, the Water District, CDOT, all these stakeholders, in order for everyone to feel that, you know what, we resolved all of our issues, we've looked at all the, the concerns, and we all said, yes, we want a Colorado Horse Park. It was designed to showcase the horse and how the horse conquered the West. E-470, when we talked about the E-470 alignment, you probably don't recall because you probably weren't watching it, but you know we changed the alignment on E-470? Did you know that? I didn't know that. Okay. We changed it because there was an abandoned eagle's nest, and it hadn't been abandoned long enough, and so we as a board decided we were actually going to move the entire alignment two miles away to accommodate that. So... There are numerous examples that I can give you as to how I look at things and move forward. What are you reading now before we go? What am I reading? Yeah. (laughs) Well, outside of a lot of the uh, articles that are coming out, right, a lot of the legislation that's been passed, uh, a lot of reports on crime, a lot of reports on water. You know, when I do have time to read something that is more pleasurable or more for me, some people may not like this but I read the Bible. I go back to reading the Bible because that's what grounds me. That's what brings me peace. That's what I feel really completes who I am. Greg Lopez, thanks for being with us. You bet you, Ryan. It's my pleasure. Lopez is a Republican candidate for Colorado governor. Tomorrow, his opponent in the June 28th primary, Heidi Ganahl, CU regent, and entrepreneur. The winner will face incumbent Democrat Jared Polis in November.
Be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Elvis Presley never forgot the sandwich. It came from a restaurant in Glendale called the Colorado Mine Company, and they called the sandwich the Fool's Gold Loaf. A whole loaf of bread, hollowed out and filled with a jar of peanut butter, a jar of blueberry jam, and a pound of bacon. Months after his first taste, the king of rock and roll had a hankering for that heaping hunk of calories. The story goes, one night in February 1976, at home in Memphis, Presley called for his private plane to fly to Denver. The restaurateurs were instructed to come to a hangar at Stapleton International with dozens of their infamous sandwiches. Elvis and Entourage washed them all down with Perrier and champagne. And then, having taken care of business without ever stepping off the plane in blue suede shoes, flew back to Graceland, full of fool's gold. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. Juneteenth marks the end of slavery in the United States. This year's celebration carries added significance. Colorado just made it a state holiday, meaning many people will get June 20th off. Students will also learn about the day in school here. Well, CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie wondered how some Coloradans have already marked the holiday and how they plan to in the future. She sat down with three guests. Hi, my name is Norman Harris. I'm the executive director of JMF Corporation, uh, Juneteenth Music Festival, which is the organizer of Denver, Colorado's Juneteenth celebration. Hello to everyone. This is the old voice of Dr. Daddio. <laughs> I am a pioneer for black radio in the state of Colorado. I'm Rita Lewis. I'm a native, Denver native. I'm an attorney. I wear several other hats, and okay. my family's from Texas and Oklahoma. Elaine asked all three about the traditions they've created. In my family, we celebrated a different Juneteenth flag. That flag would be black, red, and green. We celebrated by drinking red punch or red pop. That signified the blood of the slaves. The green in my family, from what I heard, that signified the promise of the 40 acres that we were supposed to get. And maybe that was long time, you know, after the Emancipation Proclamation, and black was the color of our skin. But it was always a celebration. Watermelon as well, red, hot links, fireworks, partying and having a good time and celebrating our freedom. So I'm a native, so I grew up with Juneteenth. My grandparents uh, made me aware of Juneteenth here in Denver, as well as whenever I would go to Oklahoma and Texas. So I celebrated it both here in Denver and Oklahoma and Texas. And it was our 4th of July, because oh. in my family, we were like, well, that, you know, that's not our Independence Day. Our Independence Day is Juneteenth. So, Daddy-O, I read on your website about the strawberry pop or the different red drinks. Can you talk a little bit about how your family celebrated Juneteenth well, as you were coming up? Yes, I grew up in the South in Louisiana, and uh, Juneteenth was celebrated when I was a young kid until I left Louisiana. And at that point, we would have, as, as, as Rita has explained about the various watermelon, red soda water, the barbecue and all of that, we too had the same thing. But I have to add baseball and softball to that opportunity because back in my, my experience in my day coming up, there were churches and schools and organizations that had uh, 
uh, baseball and softball teams. And each, uh, you know, each Juneteenth, they would go around and have competitions. And it was a very exciting experience. Was it as big of a deal as Christmas or Thanksgiving? I wouldn't say as a big a deal, but it was somewhat associated with that type of relationship. What about you, Norman? Can you talk a little bit about your uh, experience with Juneteenth? For, you know, for me, the, the celebration down in Five Points was, it was so memorable because the community was galvanized and everyone came together. And what also made it unique is it was, it was a showcase. So, you know, you came down with your best, you wore your best, you got a haircut, and you could see the pride in our culture, the, the parade gives me chills. And I think about the parade that Juneteenth had in the 80s. And so that was really my point of reference. And I knew as a young child that this was a very important day for us because I was able to see from my family standpoint them really preparing for what it seemed like a month or two for all the folks that were going to get ready to come down to Five Points. That is so interesting. Listening to all three of you talk about this because I grew up in New Jersey, and the first time that I ever heard of Juneteenth, I had already graduated from college. I was probably like 22 or 23 years old, and one of my friends who's from Mississippi told me about it and told me that it was something that they had celebrated and acknowledged, you know, ever since they were children. And I was like, really? Like, I, that was literally the first conversation I had ever had about it when I was in my early 20s. That must sound kind of crazy and surprising to you guys. Huh? No, no, you don't have to feel any any problem with that. I mean, when I came to Denver, there were quite a you know that was the conversation about Juneteenth, but there were so many people that didn't know about Juneteenth and had never heard of it. So you're not the only one on from the not the only state that had that experience of not knowing about Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about how you? each felt when you learned that Juneteenth was going to become a state holiday. Let's start with you, Dr. Daddio. Well, I was very excited. I mean, it's, you know, it's past overdue. So when it became a state holiday, what was your initial and immediate reaction, Norman? I mean, elation. Well, and I'm, you know, still happy. And it, what it helped me understand is I feel like we've just opened the door. And that um, what it's allowed us to do is to frame a conversation about why do you have the day off? Why were you in your mid-20s before you actually learned a critical piece of American history? Okay, so I call Juneteenth our Dead Sea Scrolls of American History. It's this piece that's hidden somewhere that you have to go dig for. But it also reflects our country's lack of acknowledgement of the institution of slavery. What about you, Rita? Can you talk a little bit about what you thought and felt upon learning of Juneteenth becoming a holiday? As far as what Juneteenth means to me, the minute that I heard that it became a federal holiday, I immediately thought of my grandmother and my dad. And since they're Texans, they would have been so proud. They're deceased, but that's the first thing I thought about, how proud they would be. 
Rita Lewis is a lawyer. Dr. Daddio founded a black radio station, and Norman Harris is a fifth-generation Denverite whose grandfather was involved in the city's original Juneteenth celebrations. They spoke with CPR's race diversity and equity reporter Elaine Tassi. And their conversation continues tomorrow with what they hope the future of Juneteenth will be now that it's a state and federal holiday. Finally today, the Colorado Avalanche are off to a promising start in their first Stanley Cup final in more than 20 years. They beat the Tampa Bay Lightning in Game 1 last night. And this is what you might call the soundtrack to their victory. So how did the 1999 track All the Small Things by Blink-182 become the go-to song for Avs Faithful? You can thank Avalanche DJ Craig Turney. He's been spinning tunes for the team since 2007 and is affectionately known as DJ Triple T. In 2019, he heard All the Small Things in his car and decided to try it out in the arena. Turney told NHL.com the crowd immediately responded. He recalls it was organic, it wasn't staged, everyone was into it. From there, it was decided they'd start playing it midway through the third period. There's even a Twitter account where fans post videos of themselves singing along. Of course, it would be no small thing if the Avs take home the Stanley Cup, which is 35 inches tall and weighs 34 pounds. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our own team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Andrew Kenny. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.